HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. My mother tells me that the first thing she ever ate on American soil was a hot, crispy McDonald's French fry at the airport, and it tasted like heaven. While the Black Panthers was having a meeting on the corner, the hippies were, would walk by the house and say, Peace, child. Your mama making chitlins again? I can smell them a mile away. My mother was raised at the tail end of the Depression on offerings from my grandmother's kitchen that were strictly kosher, utterly utilitarian, and verging on the penitential. She was a thick, sturdy woman, smelling fresh and clean, like Noxima cold cream and just chopped parsley. She smelled even better than the sauce on the stove. I wanted my mother all to myself. I didn't want to share her with anyone. You've just heard a few of the voices from Eat Darling Eat, a multicultural storytelling collection by and about mothers and daughters with recipes. I'm Amy Lee Ball, one of the co-founders, along with Steve Baum. Welcome to Conversations from the Kitchen Table, our special celebration for Mother's Day. Our website shares a connection with HRN. What we found is that food reflects, clarifies, and helps explore the mother-daughter relationship possibly the most significant in a woman's life. And it's not easy to get a divorce. Over the next hour, you'll hear some delicious stories with the hosts of some of your favorite HRN programs. Eat Darling Eat is a big tent. Every woman is a daughter, so every woman has a story. I certainly do. And Mother's Day is a poignant reminder. After I moved away from home, my mother and I established a tradition. I would take the train from New York and she would drive from Philadelphia, meeting halfway in Bucks County. Meeting halfway was a good metaphor for our peaceful coexistence. Although we adored each other, we often had different ideas and pathways through life. Mom liked safety. I preferred a bit of challenge. You can imagine her consternation when I decided to learn scuba diving and rock climbing. But we always agreed on a good meal for which she eventually 
grudgingly let me pay. The first time she let me pick up a restaurant check made me feel like a bona fide grown up. With our guests today, let's call them our motherboard. We're going to pull the curtain back on the usual themes for these HRN hosts and talk about their own mother-daughter relationships. Katie Mosman-Wadler has a bachelor's degree in molecular biology and a master's degree in food studies. While working at a biotech startup, she engineered yeast to discover new antibody drugs. And she's now the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network. Susan Mosman, who was Miss Woodstock, is a former designer and caterer, and perhaps most importantly, is Katie's mom. Susan, was there anything in your kitchen when Katie was growing up that would have led to her interest in yeast as a source of antibody drugs? (laughs) Did, Did you make your own bread and find Katie pouring over the yeast as it bubbled up. I mean, was that where you noticed that she'd gotten the science gene? Well, I am not sure. We did make some bread and we all ate a tremendous amount of bread. Um, we used to go to the bakery, which was a wonderful yeasty aroma. Bread alone was in the Catskill Mountains where we lived at that time. And it was started up as a wood-fired oven And it just smelled so incredibly wonderful. I am sure that's where she got her love of yeast. Katie, you spent a lot of your childhood in those Catskill Mountains of New York State. I associate that time and place with hippie culture. Were were you brought up with health food and consciousness raising and meditation? (laughs) Would you describe your mom as a flower child? (laughs) I think my mom is the OG flower child. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. When I was growing up and there was major, um, major health food consciousness, but um, also a really uh, good awareness of uh, kind of gourmet food and deliciousness, because also in the um, early nineties, health food was not always synonymous with delicious and what was at the health food store could sometimes be delicious and could sometimes be those very early iterations of like what we would call crunchy. I remember them a few disasters from the Moosewood cookbook. Oh dear. (laughs) Susan, did you grow up in a different kind of food culture? I was really lucky enough to um, have the influence of my grandmother's cooking. So she was from Germany and um, did she did make all of her own bread and jam and grew most of her vegetables and some fruits. So from time to time, um, we would be visiting my grandparents in Vermont and we would just feast on all these wonderful foods, homegrown, homemade. Was Woodstock a really important influence on who you were and who you became in life? Oh, yes, I think so. It's It was such a creative place, um, um, just just vibrating with, with creativity, artists all around, and it was so beautiful. Katie, what are your memories of childhood in Woodstock? We were outside all the time, um, 
our house was overlooking Neosopus Creek and we would um, go trout fishing a lot and we had a big garden. So I have a lot of memories of finding or growing our own food. Susan, is there any particular provenance for the way you named your children? Katie's middle name is Iris and it is one of my favorite flowers. Caitlin Iris Mosman Wadler. Katie, did you and your mom work together on creating the food for, I think, what every woman would say is one of the most special occasions of her life, your wedding? We actually did kind of a family week for the whole week leading up to the wedding. We had lots of people over. We had rented this big house, and mom basically made sure that everybody was fed during all of that time. You can't forget the blueberry muffins. We did a lot of DIY stuff for our wedding. One of the more ambitious things was I was um, really inspired by where um, you go for a fancy dinner and they give you a little parting gift, which is a pastry for the morning. And so um, for our wedding favors, we had these blueberry muffins. We actually went and picked the blueberries um, right in prime territory in August, Maine, um, got lots of mosquito bites and bee stings and tons of blueberries, came back, washed everything. We made like tons of pies, but we also made these um, lemon blueberry muffins and then like individually wrapped them and put ribbons and tags on them for favors um, and made, I don't know how many, we, we made extra. I think we made like 250. You must've had a freezer full of leftovers that would, be very welcome, I would imagine. Oh, no, I think they were all consumed. <laughs> wow. We had, uh, we had a frozen drink machine the night of the wedding, and so those muffins went to really good use soaking <laughs> all of that up. Susan, as executive director of HRN, Katie has to be something of a people wrangler. She has to make the trains run on time. Was, was that mm-hmm. a skill that she got from you? Uh, most definitely not. I mean, I try to be organized, but I am nowhere near as outgoing and personable as Katie. And she has the gift to engage and motivate people. It's very inspiring. I would totally disagree. I, okay. I probably got all of that from my mom. Okay, rumble, rumble, disagreement. You do think that you're you got that from your mom? I do. I. I I think I have um, seen her take anything she wanted to do and figure out all the things that needed to happen for that to take effect and to do it and figure out whoever needed to be taught something or instructed the most nice and wonderful way to do it. Susan, what life lessons did you consider important to pass on to Katie? Like be true to yourself, but also eat your vegetables. (laughs) Sounds about right. Have the two of you traveled much together? Mm. (laughs) We love to travel. Do you you tend to seek adventure or luxury? No, we tend to seek food and wine. (laughs) (laughs) Was Mother's Day an important holiday for you to celebrate? Oh, I remember some breakfast in beds. Breakfast in bed with the, um, and I might still have it somewhere, a rose made out of pink tissues. Ah, I remember making those too. Mm -hmm. 
and the yes. pipe cleaner stem. Mm-hmm. I used a bobby pin for the stem. Oh, smart. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. You could wear them. <laughs> exactly. And, and did you wear them out to the restaurant that night? Oh, we didn't go to restaurants. Oh. If, if, usually if we're celebrating something, we stay at home because um, the food is better. Was there some point that you remember that was kind of a hallmark in your relationship where you began to relate to one another as friends, as two grown women rather than mother and daughter? Have we reached that point yet? (laughs) I think so. Sina Russo teaches critical literacy and professional communication at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. She is currently co-chair of the editorial collective for Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, and is one of several rotating hosts of the Gastronomica podcast on the Heritage Radio Network. Is there any sort of direct line that could be drawn from your childhood as as the daughter of your mother to your professional life in the world of food? Yes, I think so. I've been compiling all more like a, a journal, I suppose, where I have been over the years recording recipes and uh, putting in little things that I cut out of magazines and so on. And on the very first page of that uh, is a photograph of myself at probably the age of, I would say, uh, three. And I'm sitting on the counter in in my mother's kitchen and my mother's standing next to me. And so there I was, <laughs> there's documentation that I was always around when she was cooking up it was something we always uh, loved to do together. Often on rainy days, we would go to the local, uh, what would be the equivalent of uh, like a bookstore, and we would browse cookbooks together. My mother was a nurse. She worked in, uh, in a refugee camp for much of my childhood. And my father was also working for an NGO that worked with refugees. They both independently moved to Africa as volunteers for the uh, Danish NGO called Dan Church Aid. Well, as my mother tells the story, I think she found Denmark a little bit provincial um, (laughs) and a little bit narrow-minded and she wanted to go and explore the world and she wanted to go and see if she could help in any way. And uh, and they so they met in Africa and they got married in Africa, in Tanzania. But I suppose they moved back to Africa because that was where they felt more useful and happy. And at what point did you and your mom create lives in different cities? And and how did she handle that? It's an interesting and complicated question. Um, My family has done a lot of moving around, but my mother ended up coming to live with me in Cape Town after my father was uh, unfortunately killed in a car accident um, now about 21 years ago. So we lived together in Cape Town for a while and then we moved together to Denmark for a while. And so there's been a lot of to and fro, but it's always difficult to say goodbye 
I'm hoping to have a little trip with her in Ireland in July this year for her 80th birthday. Um, yeah. do, you, do you tend to have similar, similar ideas about what makes the best experience of travel? We both are pretty flexible in terms of when and how we eat. When I was growing up, it, there was never a very kind of set meal time, except for there was a terrible American religious soap opera that my mother and I used to watch religiously. Not, not that we are religious, but anyway, it was on every night at 8 p.m. So the only thing that dictated when we were going to sit down and eat was that we were going to sit down and eat to watch another life. Also, when it comes to baking and recipes or making cooking all together, I think I learned from my mother to be relaxed about, oh, well, if you discover halfway through that you don't have that this ingredient, then it's okay to do without. You don't need to start panicking or you can feel come up with something better. That, so, that kind of laissez-faire or loosey-goosey approach to the to the baking um, could be very useful as a carryover into other arenas of life. I think so. To this day, my mother, she's incredibly kind of uh, flexible and versatile and adaptable to any sort of situation. My mother was always incredibly good at making curtains and getting a home to look like it had been lived in for 20 years within a week of being in a new house. And sometimes my father would come home and say, oh, I've got 20 colleagues coming around for dinner. And she would magic a meal for 20 people. It was sitting around a fire, listening to jazz, eating her roasted peanuts, and she would be in the kitchen roasting potatoes and there would be some meat on the fire and some salads and everyone would be fed and happy and uh, that was just kind of a magical that that was my idea of hospitality i was wondering whether there were indeed parts of the danish culture and cuisine that you miss and crave when you're away from it even though you left at an early age things that i miss are things that I cannot make myself, but need to be bought and transported like very salty licorice that I used to stuff my suitcase with as a child when we were on holiday. And then I'd force all my friends to try it and they hated it. The last several years created extraordinary stress for adult mothers and daughters living in different places, or sometimes even for those in the same city. How did you stay in touch with your mom during the pandemic? Well, as it happens, uh, she did recently send me some licorice from Denmark, um, but mostly we stay in touch by WhatsApp every day, little messages here and there. So we are constantly in communication. And sometimes it's around food. Whenever I enjoy a plate of beautiful prawns, I send my mother a picture only because I, make, I know it makes her very envious. And my mother immediately sent me a picture of her meal, which was rye bread with a piece of cheese. And she was very envious. 
So we have a lot of to and fro with things like that. My mother's kitchen was always a place of safety and comfort. And I think that I have certainly inherited from her the the immediate desire to, if I move into a home, the first place that I need to get into shape is the kitchen. And it's not just a place to make tea. It's a place to sit and to be and to spend a day cooking and, and talking and having a glass of wine with friends. Sometimes we see personality traits in the kitchen. Somebody who is more of a rule follower versus somebody who likes to color outside the lines. Do you think any of those personality traits of your mother's showed up in the kitchen? Yes, absolutely. And when I think about the last time that I was with her in a kitchen, she had arranged for a number of people to come by for lunch. There she was in a tiny kitchen catering for more people than one should be catering for in such a small space. And she just has this focus, never got phased by how many people there were, and she never lost her cool. Did you and inherit that cool, that focus? <laughs> I would like to think so. Linda Palaccio was the program director of the Culinary Historians of New York, where she is still active, and a member of Les Dames de l'Escoffier. She was one of the early writers and producers for the then nascent TV Food Network, and now hosts A Taste of the Past for Heritage Radio Network. Linda, your surname might lead us to believe that you grew up with all things pasta and pomodoro, but that might be the wrong assumption. What, what is your family heritage? <laughs> I always say my palate is Italian, but I'm not Italian. Um, my background and heritage is a little bit of, of everything on one side, English, German, and Dutch. And then on my mother's side, um, it's all Polish. How did you come to live in Italy? Well, it was... Um, during the Vietnam War, and my husband intended to go to medical school, and everyone wanted to go to medical school, I guess, because it was a surefire deferment, mm -hmm. and applications were, you know, very heavy. He had the option of going to Italy, and a lot of American students were doing that at the time, and he said, will you come with me? I said, oh, that's not a tough question. <laughs> I said, of course. So, we went to Italy and stayed there for five years. And you found you were Italian in your soul? Oh, you bet. And still am. Did your own family's cultural background influence the way that your mom fed you when you were growing up? Well, yeah. You know, I grew up in the Midwest. There was no actual identification with any, any um, ethnic background. It was all very much Midwestern American cuisine. I guess that's the best I could describe it. And she was a very good cook and she was, a, she was a very economical cook. She just wasn't very experimental, but everything she made tasted really good. We didn't spend a lot of time in the kitchen together. 
Um, I was one of four and uh, was always kind of a crazy, hectic <laughs> household as kids, as you can imagine. And dinner always just magically appeared on the table. My mother had a thrifty gene that I inherited. <laughs> I think it would be true for both of us that we might drop $3,000 to go to Europe, but we might walk 12 blocks out of the way to get a cantaloupe that costs $4 instead of one that costs $6. <laughs> Did you inherit a thrifty gene from your mother? Indeed, because at an early age, um, my father died. She became a single mother with four children. She had to feed us, but there wasn't always a lot of money. And she then went to work. So yes, it was thrifty and it was you know, it, it was, I guess it was just the way she cooked anyway, because in high school, money was tight. My mother would give me 50 cents uh, for lunch and I would buy, you know, I'd buy one of those big flat chocolate chip cookies and no one was looking over my shoulder to say, you know, no, you have to have a lunch. So I would buy a nickel for a cookie and save the rest of the money so I could go to the dances on Friday night. You uh, had your priorities in order. <laughs> I certainly did. Sometimes siblings in the same family seem to experience a different mother. Perhaps mom had more of herself to give at different times in her life. Would that be true for you and your siblings? From my perspective, never played favorites. Um, even as adults, when we would come to visit, she would always cook something that she thought was our favorites, whoever was visiting. For some reason, she pegged me with oatmeal cookies. Well, and that was a favorite. And then my kids got apple slices because they always told her how good they were. And they were, in fact, very good. And there was a little bit of competition going on between my mother and me. When it comes to food or really anything else, were there surrogate mothers for you? Neighbors or aunts or the mothers of friends who enlightened you or inspired you or showed you the world's possibilities? I do recall going to my friend's house one time and her mother was making dinner and I walked in the kitchen and there were these acorn squashes. And I remember to this day, the, you know, the shape of them on a sheet pan that she was putting in the oven. And uh, I was just stunned. Like, what are these and what is she doing with them? And then, you know. Did your mother understand and accept and really in any way foster your desire to have a bigger life, a life of comfort and culture? Yes, without, without a doubt. She, it's interesting because she was from a family of immigrants and her mother and father moved away from the, the little settlement, the area where they all lived. And her mother was sort of a renegade hearing tales only because I didn't know her. Um, and they wanted a modern life. Modern, we're talking, my mother was born 100 years ago, so I'm talking, you know, a long, a long time ago. And they moved to a, a more, let's say, mixed modern part of the town. My mother was always, you know, running away from her background, I guess. And, and always inspired in us, even though we didn't have a lot of money, she always made me feel that we had a lot more than we did. And That's pretty remarkable that she was yeah. able to accomplish that. 
And I never, I never felt that I was poor. Yes. And she inspired, you know, reading and learning. And uh, she really just, she always, she was beautiful also. And she was always, you know, she would always get herself, you know, dressed up, not dressed up, but, you know, dressed in a, in a very, as fashionable manner as, as, you know, was possible for her. She always looked great. And I just, oh, I would play dress up in her clothes for, you know. she made an entire wardrobe for a doll that I received for Christmas one year from scraps that she had from her own clothes that she made. A lot of these things you could better hear from my husband. Probably he was, he was in love with her and he just thought she was you know, wow. the greatest. And I always thought I was, and I guess maybe I had then the same, um, feelings as she did as, you know, wanting to get away from, from my family. And, and I looked at every opportunity I could to, um, to expand and grow. And Dana Cowan was the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine for more than 20 years and the author of Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen. She is now on the boards of City Harvest and Hot Bread Kitchen and the host of Speaking Broadly on the Heritage Radio Network, interviewing women in the food industry about their greatest challenges and triumphs. Would your mom have read a magazine like Food and Wine when you were growing up? <laughs> um, there were no magazines in my house. And not that my parents didn't read, but I think they stayed to the classics. And my mother never cooked. And her mother, I don't think, ever cooked either. And I don't think anyone in that matrilineal line um, really picked up a pot uh, by choice. Is there any kind of direct line between your mother's kitchen and the way you grew up and your career in food magazines and now hosting on HRN? I think if there was a direct line, it's that um, children are often the opposite of their parents. And so the line's a flip-flop. My mother was never in the kitchen and now I am often in the kitchen. Um, we ate boiled food and food out of cans and we didn't really go to restaurants. I'd say it was a dotted line if there's any line at all. <laughs> but my mother has done extraordinary um, things in the world and she's really proud of them and really fierce. Tell us about her extraordinary things and about her fierceness. Well, uh, my father died about 30 years ago when my mother was about the age I am today. So she was 62. And in the decades before that, my mother was old fashioned support to her husband. But since um, my father died, my mother has taken an incredible stand in uh, 
three things that she cares about a lot. She cares about education, she cares about financial literacy, and she cares about women. And in each of these areas, she has devoted her uh, time to boards, to volunteering, and to funding things that advance each of those causes. And I just love the idea that at 62, she was able to, and excited by, all of these different areas and pursued all of them. You serve on the boards of two great nonprofits, food-related. I had a sense that when you have the opportunity in this world, you should give back. I know that you've tried your hand at writing fiction and realized it was not your strong suit, which I completely empathize. I'm... (laughs) I am very much a reporter of character and dialogue, not a creator of character and dialogue. I'm wondering if your mom was important in helping you discover what your particular skills and gifts were. I remember as a kid going to my mother with my stories and saying, you know, read this, read this. No, I would have written like two paragraphs and I want her immediate response. Isn't it brilliant? Which of course, my mother being honest was sometimes, yes, it was brilliant. And sometimes, no, it actually is not brilliant. You should really go back at it. My mother is a phenomenal cheerleader. And in fact, in leaving Food and Wine, you know, I had many more questions at 55 than I had at 21 or anywhere uh, along the way. When I was really trying to figure out what other avenues I could pursue, because it wasn't going to be necessarily the thing that came most natural to me, which was editorial, her approach was, you've, you know, you figured it out before and it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what you do because you're great. She is forever proud. That, that support or cheerleading or lack of it from a mother can be uh, a double-edged sword, I think. I remember a friend who wanted to move into the world of television, talking about her ambitions with her mother. And her mother's response was, well, you'll have to lose 20 pounds and you'll have to get a nose job. Whereas my mother, her attitude was, that she didn't understand why Savannah Guthrie was on TV and I wasn't. (laughs) Oh my God. I love your mother. That's amazing. I feel like my mother must be that third lane, which is neither fix your imperfections or you're completely perfect. How could they not see it? Has there been any time where your mother has surprised you with her response to an issue you were dealing with, a problem you were having, situation you found yourself in? Well, about 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and my mother was shocked. But once she got over the shock, she was absolutely spurred to action. And she said, you know, I'm going to make this like for every bad thing that happens during this time, we're going to do one good thing. One of the things that we did was we threw a party together. So my mother also loves a good party and she loves to host. And so we came up with a party that was called when you, when life gives you lemons, make lemon meringue pie. 
<laughs> and she hosted a pie party for me. She invited all of my friends. It was to mark the middle of the four months of chemo treatment. And we had sweet pies and savory pies. And it just, it was the essence of my mother and taking something negative and making it a positive. And also the essence of her, her nature, which is to, to host and to cheer on and to bring, um, bring people together. I know that we share an obsession with one of the great TV series about mothers and daughters, Gilmore Girls. And food it could not be more true. I mean, I'm obsessed. It is my favorite show ever. Those formal Friday night dinners at Grandma Emily's served by a stream of ill-treated maids. But left to their own devices, Lorelai and Rory subsisted on a horrifying diet of takeout pizza and Pop-Tarts. Why is it a favorite of yours? Uh, so I, I relate to the relationship between Lorelai and her mother. I wish I had like the wicked sense of humor that <laughs> Lorelai has. Um, and then, you know, the in the other direction, I joke with my daughter. She's like, you are not Lorelai. You are not Lorelai. <laughs> Sylvia's always astonished. Um, at some of the things that I do that are absolutely illogical. So I see, I see the parallel in the three generations and I find it quite comical. I remember my mother saying to me at one point, you don't treat me like your friends. And my response was, you're not my friends, you're my mother. <laughs> <laughs> was there some kind of transition that you made turning your mother into a friend? Hmm, that's such a good question. I mean, I think that my mother actually is pretty on the mother's own. She's not really a repository of, of secrets. She's a, but what she is that's in the friend zone is a joyful companion. Do you have any favorite memories of Mother's Day? Mother's Day is one of the great holidays in our family. We don't celebrate too many, um, but we do celebrate Mother's Day, July 4th, and Thanksgiving. Those are the holidays that are my mother's. And Mother's Day is a gathering of the clan. I have to, for all the generations to get together and to catch up. And my mother loves that day. Capri Cafaro is a native of Ohio who served three terms as the Democratic state senator, including a stint as minority leader from 2009 to 2012. She is an executive in residence at American University School of Public Affairs, the author of a book called United We Eat, 50 Great American Dishes to Bring Us Together, and the host of Eat Your Heartland Out on Heritage Radio Network. Italian-Americans have provided some of our favorite stories for Eat Darling Eat. <laughs> I, I remember one of our storytellers describing her mother's aroma as a combination of homemade spaghetti sauce, Chanel Number no. 5, and bleach. That's, that sounds about right. To me, I, I, think, I think of my grandmother's house, and it's like garlic... And like Murphy's oil soap. 
<laughs> and, 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 and potential and white shoulders. Okay. Well, we got to get, we got to get the perfume correct. I'm, I'm interested in knowing whether food was a source of pleasure or creativity for your mom or more of a maternal responsibility. I would say more of a maternal responsibility. We learned our um, joy of cooking and food and gardening and everything else from our maternal grandmother, 100% Italian. And so much of what we know, um, you know, actually came from my grandmother um, and not necessarily my mom. We just took interest in, I think, preserving the heritage and people growing up in the 1950s, 1960s and that post-war era really about assimilation. It wasn't about speaking Italian. It wasn't about food traditions we all cherish today. It was about an assimilation and Betty Crocker cookbooks and macaroni and cheese and meatloaf and those sort of things. And to this day, I actually, you know, some of that is, is still my comfort food. My program, Eat Your Heartland, is, you know, it's about the intersection of food and culture in the Midwest and trying to tell the story that the Midwest is much more than kind of what I just described. Not just convenience foods, but, but you know, I am from the Midwest and there is there is some truth into that as well. And and that certainly was, was my experience growing up. Did your mom have a job or profession outside the home that was more of a source of pleasure and creativity for her than a kind of traditional female gender role of cooking? And what messages did you get from her about those traditional gender roles? I mean, I think the traditional gender roles were were definitely um, adhered to and um, I think were expected. I think that the relationship that, all, that we all had around food was very complex. On one hand, we all enjoyed food and appreciated food. And it was very much, you know, integral to, you know, our, our cultural heritage. Uh, gender roles is also about diet culture and restricting. And it's a complex relationship for sure. Um, but food is this tool, I think, to really open up people's eyes about a much larger, a much larger story, whether it's an economic one, uh, an anthropological one, an agricultural one. What I create is content today for sure. You um, went to high school at a very early age, at 12. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> went to Stanford at 15. 15? <laughs> I'm wondering what role your mom played in making sure that her precocious daughter had a childhood, had a balance between education and ambition and, and playtime. Uh, you know, I never really felt out of place. I never really felt that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I actually felt that I was in the right place at the right time. I think that the circumstances that I was in, I think a lot of that was down to having that trust placed in me um, at an early age. And I think having very strong values instilled in me uh, by my parents, my, my mom, she loves, she loves the Flintstones uh, just as much as the next person. So we cartoons whenever we wanted. What were the family values that you brought to the world of politics? Intelligence, work ethic, perseverance, paying it forward, uh, empathy, you know, all of those things are, are critically important, you know, taking care of, of your neighbor. As your interest in politics developed, what was your mother's reaction to that sort of uh, trajectory that you were on for your career? She had anticipated maybe that it, I you know, with political wife and not a politician. I think she, she definitely wanted me to be a journalist. But over time, she recognized the importance 
of, um, you know, standing up for myself, standing up for the community, fiercely um, defensive and protective of, of me um, as you know, I entered and stayed in the public eye. Both regional and state politicians do a lot of cream chicken dinners and <laughs> corn dogs or candy apples at the state fairs. Oh, yes. Did those kinds of experiences and foods help to inform you and then your cookbook? Absolutely. Going to so many of these events over the years, whether it's fairs, festivals, you know, the the grape jamboree, the strawberry festival, the apple festivals, legendary dairy barn um, and milkshake stand at the Ashtabula County Fair, for example, which we all fought to do. You see how much food plays a role in bringing together communities and educating communities about. It was a way that, you know, I used food to bring people together. So we know that the culinary and cultural influences in your life came from grandma. Did grandmother and mother have similar kinds of rules of behavior or (laughs) sayings or shibboleths that you were supposed to adhere to? Those those kind of sayings definitely were passed down and they were, um, you know, very sage advice. Today you splurge, tomorrow you watch uh, and Ah. and, and everything in moderation. Both my mom and my grandma absolutely held on to those things. And, you know, so did I. Um, And so, you know, I often call upon those sage words. Was Mother's Day an important occasion for your grandmother, your mother, you and your sister? Do you have any favorite Mother's Day memories? I always try to do something fun as far as, uh, you know, getting unique kind of purse. One was like a flower pot. And then one was like, (laughs) you know, one was a watering can and one was a lobster. And so like that sort of stuff. Those those sound like they would become uh, collector's items, I think. Exactly, exactly. Is there something you'd like to say to your mom here? Thank you for being you. (laughs) That's perfect. I think she'll appreciate that. Akiko Katayama holds advanced degrees in both business and science from New York University and the London School of Economics. She is director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, a nonprofit that promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in the United States. And she is the host of Japan Eats on the Heritage Radio Network. Akiko, you share an important connection with Eat Darling Eat. As we've discovered with our storytellers, you've said that each of the guests on your program has a story and that your mother is a perfect example. Can you share a bit of your mother's story with us? First of all, she's the nicest and uh, the most selfless individual I've ever met in my whole life. So I can't even believe I came out of her. She grew up uh, in Tokyo, and then when she was 17, uh, she got uh, tuberculosis, and uh, there's no hope. That, back then, uh, the cure was not very uh, promising, so but somehow she managed to recover and then married my dad. And then uh, she, was, she was told that she wouldn't be able to have a baby, but she did, my brother and I, very grateful all the time. And um, 
she just does everything for others. And she doesn't even think that she's doing everything for others. There's no sense of sacrifice. I don't know. It's, it's impossible to be Spikarina. Because of her illness, was she a, a worrying kind of mom about you? Did she want to try to keep you very safe and protected? Um, nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, yes, uh, she, that's the thing. She's always a cheerleader of everybody. And my early age, they knew I was so stubborn that if I, they tell me what to do, I'll do the opposite. So they totally gave up <laughs> to, to try to keep me safe. She's just go find the world, enjoy life. That's always what she thought I should. Did she try to pass her culinary skills onto you? She was really worried. Are you okay? <laughs> Can you cook? And uh, I, I really admit I didn't know how to cook, but she knew I would learn like she did. Somehow it was necessary. You managed to learn. And she really trusted me. You chose a path in life for your education and your career that took you far away from home. Did you ever feel pressure to return to Japan? Never. She, she was brave enough to trust me 100%. Of course, she feels lonely by losing me far away from her home, but I think she was kind of proud um, instead of uh, get, getting frustrated. Has your mom ever visited you in New York, seen your New York life? No. <laughs> I, I invited her many times, but um, actually she doesn't speak English and she never left Japan. Yeah, she, she's curious, but she's old now. So unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. How do you stay in touch? My father passed away um, three years ago. So since then, we decided we're going to just communicate every day. So every single day, morning and night, we just chat over messages. And she learned the technology that was necessary. Yes. So that's another amazing thing about my mom. So um, she's 84 now. We gave her a new iPhone. She's just managing the new gadget more than anybody else, so smoothly, easily. And that's really a constant surprise. She's very technologically advanced. She's an Apple girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she is. (laughs) Um, My mother, during the last part of her life, wanted a phone call every night. And it was the old days of long distance charges. And so she would wait until after nine o'clock at night when calls were free. My phone would ring precisely at 9.01 p.m. And it was my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. As you've navigated the world, what attributes of your mom do you recognize in yourself? What about her is inside you? What, What about her have you taken with you? Oh, wow. That's a very deep question. I appreciate you asked. <laughs> Sometimes I get frustrated or something I do not like about myself and think of my mom. What would she do? And I really follow what she would do, meaning calmer, nicer, and 
more giving kind of person. She was a peacekeeper and she listens on both sides. And she draws the conclusion to, into peace. So that's her very special skill. When you do visit home, do you know that she'll be preparing certain special foods for you? Yes, she's not so into cooking for herself. Um, I go visit her. She always asks, what do you like? And there's one uh, specific pot dish that's actually simmered uh, chicken and vegetables. It's a traditional Japanese dish. And she really makes a lot of it, like a whole pot full of it. And whenever I stay her, with her for a week, I just keep snacking on it. <laughs> but the way she makes, I can find it nowhere. Her way, uh, the taste is gentler than any other person's recipe. I think that's reflecting her personality. Says so no, but I have to mention her special knife. Um, it's a really good Japanese knife. And you can use it almost for anything on a daily cooking. And that's what she's got when she got married as a wedding gift. And she takes care of that knife very well, that is still going after, I don't know how many years, 60 something years. <laughs> kind of way, take care of everything carefully and uh, it lasts a long time. Do you have special Mother's Day memories with your mom? Uh, yeah, so when I was little, um, I would just always go to a flower shop and then I tried to find, just pick one because, you know, as a little girl, you don't have much money. So just one flower and I would spend like 30 minutes <laughs> just to pick one flower, slightly different from the previous year. But she really never expected anything to be presented or given. So whatever we brought to her, she was really, really grateful and happy. Yeah, I got lucky. As I hear these stories about the delights and the challenges of the mother-daughter relationship, I'm full of admiration for mothers who adapt and change and listen and create the space for a daughter to thrive and spread her own wings. One of my own mom's best qualities was her willingness to embrace new ideas, to live in the moment. She tried, actually tried, to understand why Springsteen's voice had the same weak in the knees effect on me that Sinatra had on her generation. Following her example, I try to live in the century in which I happen to be alive. It may be the best part of my DNA from mom. I didn't get her gorgeous legs. I miss her every day. And for Mother's Day, I will go buy a big bunch of lilacs, her favorite flower, and make her famous crab imperial for dinner, even though she would be horrified that buying fresh crab meat now might require a bank loan. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Please visit our website at www.eatdarlingeat.net for more wonderful stories. And please consider sharing yours. <laughs>